A warm welcome to the Herdy School. Herdy School. The Herdy School. The Herdy School. Berlin needs a globally visible public policy school. Understand today, shape tomorrow. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Herdy School in Berlin. My name is Alexandre Skandergala. I'm a postdoc fellow at the uh, Center for Fundamental Rights at the Herdy School, and I'm the convener of the Fundamental Rights Research Colloquium. Um, we will have an extremely interesting session with two guests uh, on the uh, COVID-19 pandemics and the German constitutional framework. As some of you have uh, seen from the announcement, we will have Pierre Tilperger with us, but we will also have Benedikt Bellert uh, with us to present the work that they've been publishing in the Verfassungs blog over uh, the last month. Now, I will first uh, present Pierre. You've seen uh, the, uh, from the announcement uh, some of his uh, affiliation. So as you know, he's a professor of German public law and international law with a focus on international law of peace and armed conflict at the Ruhr University Bochum. He's also an adjunct professor at the Herty School. So many of you might already know him. He's the executive director of the Institute for International Law of Peace and Armed Conflict in Bochum, and he holds degree in law, journalism, and public policy from the University of Hamburg and Harvard, as well as a PhD in international law from the Uni European University Institute in Florence. You've seen from the last announcement that Pierre has uh, written two blog posts on the COVID-19 pandemics and the German constitutional framework. In these two blog posts, he was co-authoring these with Benedict Bellart. Benedict Bellart is research associate at the Ruhr University Bochum Institute for International Law of Peace and Armed Conflict and PhD student at the law faculty. His research is on the necessity of a conversation between the administration and the individual, the relevance of procedures to international human rights. So I'm very happy to have our two presenters to have accepted to come to us and speak about the German constitutional framework on how it addresses the COVID-19 pandemics. So as I mentioned, they have published two blog posts in the Verfassungs blog. These blog posts date from March, and now we are now in early May, so things have evolved, and even the response of the uh, German uh, Federation and its lenders have evolved over the time, so we are now even easing the lockdown. But now, looking back at what happened and how the Federation responded, it's interesting to even have a greater appraisal now in May compared to March. Uh, so I'm inviting guests to go to the Verfassungs blogs to look at these blog posts afterwards, and you can see where their thoughts have evolved. But also, I strongly recommend taking a greater look at the Verfassungsblog for the incredible amount of uh, blog posts on how several uh, jurisdictions have responded to the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. It's an amazing uh, ma uh, resource uh, to console the material. I understand that Pierre is still contributing in developing new projects with them on this issue. Might uh, tell us at a later point on this. So to be sure, I just want to repeat the, the format of today's colloquium. We will have a presentation with our two presenters for 15, 20 minutes, and then we will pass to a Q&A where people in the audience can ask questions 
or make comments. For the moment, I'm asking you all to keep yourself muted, except our two presenters. And afterwards, when you are ready to intervene, please put a question mark or write question in the chat section, and then we will reach, uh, we will call you, and then you can unmute and make your question. But to begin with, let's have our presenters. Pierre, Benedict, thank you very much. And the microphone is now yours. Yes, uh, thank you very much, um, Skander, uh, for the invitation. Also, thank thanks to Mikhail, thanks to uh, Bashak and to uh, Catherine um, uh, for giving us the floor to speak about COVID-19 and the German Basic Law fit for a pan-democracy. Um, I also want to thank Benedict to join me because when you first had asked me to give this presentation, it hadn't really occurred to me. But of course, what I'm going to present is mainly also um, uh, work that is published on, as you mentioned, Skander, on the Verfassungs blog, on several blogs that we have uh, published and several more to come. Um, and um, that, that was mainly co-authored with Benedict. So I asked him to join because I think they, I think it's it's fair if, that he uh, gets to present just as much as me because it's really our joint um, uh, ideas. Uh, maybe a very first note, I always shiver a bit if I read German basic law. I mean, that is the official... Um, translation of Grundgesetz of the German Constitution. Maybe for those of you who are uh, not German lawyers, and I understand that's probably the majority of you, uh, that is a bit of an odd title. But our Constitution, that is what the German basic law is, in case you wondered what is meant by that, um, that is, is a historical reason, right? So, you know, Germany was uh, separated into two parts. And when the Western part was given its constitution, uh, people ha were hesitant to call it a constitution because in the idea of the fathers and the mothers of that constitution, that would mean a kind of some uh, eternal um, outlook. And given that Germany always wanted to be uh, unified, they gave this odd uh, name. German basic law, Grundgesetz, and that's why our German constitution is not called constitution, right? Because by uh, 1990, when Germany was unified, people had grown very attached to the name of uh, Grundgesetz, and therefore there's always a strange English translation into basic law. Anyway, um, yeah, so the plan for today is to do three things. Um, the first is to give you a little background into the German uh, constitutional system. Uh, obviously, not too much because that by itself would take, I guess, 20 minutes or longer. Um, but there are the arguments we are trying to develop in the two papers that we have uh, published uh, on Verfassung's blog uh, requires a bit of background knowledge about the German uh, constitutional setup, about federalism, for instance, um, about what are the competences of the lender, what are the competences of uh, the German federal state. So we'll give a very short introduction into that so that you can follow where the argument for the German case specifically comes from. Um, secondly, we'll go then into uh, the German law of state organization uh, because parts of our argument really, our argument is really criticism, right? So what we, are, what we have posted on Verfassung's blog uh, is criticizing that the current system doesn't work very well. I'll come to that later. And it, it doesn't work very well on two levels, in our opinion. One has to do uh, with the fact how the German uh, state uh, organs uh, organize themselves in times of a crisis. They don't have the means at their hands that they need to reorganize. That's kind of uh, the first part that I will elaborate uh, on. Uh, that goes both for the relation between the federal level and the level of the lender. 
which are, who are very, very strong in the German case, as you might know, but we'll come to that later as well. And then the, the second argument we are making um, relates to fundamental rights uh, in Germany. And uh, fundamental rights in Germany, uh, we have a specific situation, Benedict will uh, elaborate a bit on that later, uh, where different from in uh, many uh, international human rights treaties, we don't have a specific uh, article uh, which would uh, allow for restrictability and even more so uh, for, um, uh, for, for derogation of human rights in times of emergency, right? So if you know a bit the ICCPR or the human uh, or the European Convention on Human Rights, you know, they have explicit articles on that and the German constitution doesn't. So this uh, will be is the outline of what we do. And as Skander already said, uh, thankfully in the very beginning, uh, these are, if you want a more elaborated uh, version of what we're going to present uh, to you, you can read this in three blogs. Uh, one was in mid-March, uh, uh, published in Verfassungsblog, which was before the German relevant law, the Infektionsschutzgesetz, the simple law that is below the constitution, before that was changed. Uh, then that article was uh, translated into English. If you prefer to read that in English, it's also on the blog of ICON. ICONAC. And then when the first reform of the Infektionsschutzgesetz took place, uh, where I would say, maybe a bit cheeky, that the German state had realized some of the problems that we had also pointed out and others as well, uh, but the answers that were given in our view were not adequate, right? So there's two related blog posts here, but they, uh, one is before the change of the Infektionsschutzgesetz, the, the law that, that deals with pandemics in Germany, and the second post is after. Um, yeah, that may be as an introduction what we're going to do, uh, and then Benedict can maybe say something about the German setup. We decided a bit to change and maybe two general remarks. Uh, we will not talk about articles and paragraphs very much. We could do that very much because, you know, Germans love uh, paragraphs and laws and, and the German lawyers do that even more. But we try to lift it a bit more to the meta uh, level because I don't think you are so interested in this, in this group. Um, uh, yeah, and secondly, we'll switch uh, a bit. So uh, Benedict will speak once, I will speak, then Benedict will speak again and I will speak again. So you'll hear us a few times. Okay, uh, hello everyone. Uh, thank you, Skander, for the introduction and for the kind invitation. I'm very, very happy uh, to be here and to get to uh, speak to, to all of you uh, virtually. Thank you, Pierre, for uh, the introduction to our talk and um, <clears throat> uh, introducing how our ideas came about. Um, as Pierre said, I will now try to give you a little bit of background on the German constitution, um, mainly on the German emergency constitution, constitution, what's called emergency constitution, so emergency regulations in the basic law. Um, and against the backdrop um, of this, we will then uh, try to unfold uh, our criticism. So first of all, um, because of its of its history um, with uh, with uh, national socialism, um, the the German Basic Law is very much a consequence uh, of these times. It tried to um, it tried to draw uh, a lot of the right lessons uh, from this um, from from the time of, of uh, from this horrible time of national socialism. Um, and one of the things where you can see that very strongly is that the German um, Grundgesetz, the German Basic Law, puts a strong emphasis on the decentralization of power. And that really, as Pierre already hinted at, goes both vertically and horizontally. Vertically, um, there is very pronounced federalism, 
um, in the German basic law, and that goes for um, the fact that the general competences for legislation and administration of the laws are with the lender and only exceptionally they are with the federation. Um, and in reality, uh, you can actually see a lot of political difference between the different lender. And if you think about this idea of decentralizing power as a lesson learned from national socialism, that is generally a very good thing that there is a lot of political difference because um, the the lender are also they also participate um, in the legislative process via the Bundesrat, which is the second chamber um, in the German um, legislative process. And um, when they have when there's great political difference between the lender, then this body is also uh, very diverse. Um, or constituted uh, from very diverse political forces. And um, for democracy, um, that is a good thing. Um, and then horizontally, um, you have a very pronounced separation of powers. And because of these things that I mentioned, there is great hesitation regarding concentration of power with the federal executive, um, also because um, that was in Weimar times uh, one of the things that 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 played out so absolutely um, horribly um, when Hitler and the National Socialists rose to power. So against that backdrop, um, some remarks on the existent uh, emergency regulations um, in the basic law. They are very limited and there is a difference between external and internal emergencies. The external emergencies um, are situations um, where other states would attack uh, the territory of the Federal Republic of Germany. And for an external emergency, you actually have competence shifts towards the federal government. You have simplifications in the legislative process to make the Bundestag more flexible. Um, and there are explicit restrictions on fundamental rights, for example, with regard to Article 12, um, that is, uh, there are some competences for the federal government then to assign um, to, to to assign specific tasks to certain branches of the economy, etc., um, which obviously interferes with um, with the right to to freedom of labor. Um, and uh, there are some explicit regulations. An internal emergency, on the other hand, uh, is regulated even more in even more limited ways. So it, there is a division between catastrophes on the one hand and between imminent dangers to the existence or the free democratic basic order. Um, the second one goes a bit further in what the um, in what the federal executive can do. But generally, there are there is only very limited shift of competence. Um, and there are no explicit rules for how to deal with fundamental rights um, in times of internal emergencies. Yes, um, and that is really the background of um, the argument that we try to uh, make. And in a nutshell, uh, that argument is, so how fit is the German Grundgesetz for a pandemic like COVID-19? And the short answer is not very, not very well prepared. At all. Um, and that critique goes to two uh, main points, essentially. Mm, and that is the one being uh, relating already to what Benedict said, this uh, too little flexibility 
vis-à-vis uh, -vis the state reorganization uh, of the state in uh, such cases of a pandemic uh, relating to legislation, but also relating to the fact that it's very difficult to concentrate power at uh, the federal level. And the second one relates to fundamental rights, which is uh, different to what we see, for instance, in the ICCPR or in the European Convention on Human Rights. We don't have this strict distinction between uh, when we have like an emergency and when we have normality. Um, that is not to say uh, that uh, the same restrictions cannot be made, but the distinction is not made explicitly uh, in the Constitution. So let's uh, turn to the first point. So what do we mean by this lack of flexibility? vis-a-vis uh, -vis state organization. Benedict pointed out this very strict uh, distinction in the German constitution between external and internal emergency, right? Um, and what Benedict uh, said already that this is very much um, differently organized by the both is poorly organized. I mean, if it's just for norm clarity reasons, already that would uh, require a rewriting of the constitution because it's all over the constitution. Yeah, you don't have a part of the constitution that deals with emergencies. It's all over the place. It's very complicated. In our first blog, we try to catch everything in the constitution that deals with emergency regulations and it's a mess to make a long story short, right? So uh, that's the first thing. But what is even more important is that there is no justification that we can see why the external emergency is regulated so differently from the internal emergency. Yeah. So why do we have such a strict uh, distinction between the two? Because what it appears to us is that what is required in terms of making legislation simpler what might be required in terms of uh, concentrating power at the federal state level rather than at the level of the different lender is very much uh, the same. And uh, the differences are really very uh, dramatic. I just give you one uh, example, uh, which I think is very, very striking. Um, and that is uh, if we had an external emergency, so of a power like um, attacking Germany, the whole uh, Bundestag, and the Bundesrat, so our two bodies that are in charge of legislation, are uh, replaced by a new body, the so-called Joint Committee, the Gemeinsame Ausschuss. And that thing is much more swift because it has only 48 members, two-thirds of the Bundestag, one-third of the Bundesrat, and they kind of take over legislation in a time where the Bundestag, the parliament, cannot come together in its normal manners, right? And why would that uh, not apply to uh, the same... Um, why would that not uh, apply in the same way to the case of where the Bundestag cannot come together um, in terms in times of uh, Corona? I mean, uh, maybe if you click to the next picture, Benedict, uh, that should come now, right? So uh, you see here the Bundestag at the moment has 709 members. It is the biggest uh, Bundestag that we ever had. Even before this pandemic, there were a lot of voices that said it's crazy how big our parliament is by now. We need to make this smaller. But if you now think about this, where we are not allowed to meet more than one person, essentially, uh, how can a body of seven, 709 members come together in a meaningful way? It just isn't possible. Uh, there were changes now being done, to, to be honest, uh, to, to be complete, uh, that the quorum that we normally have for the Bundestag, which is half of the members, so if half of 709 come together, the Bundestag can take decisions. That has been narrowed down to a quarter now. So that is uh, still that is significant, of course, but still even a quarter of 709 members can in the current situation not meaningfully come together. So 
that is the one uh, big criticism that we don't have this procedural shift, for instance, vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the Bundestag and how it cooperates with the Bundesrat. Uh, the second one goes more to the side of cooperation between the Bund and the lender, so the federal level and the lender. Um, and that is, as Benedict pointed out, and that's very important here, in the case of an external emergency, the state has uh, the power, sorry, the federal state has the power to concentrate powers and, for instance, to tell the lender what to do, more or less. So take competences uh, to the federal level. I mean, I'm simplifying it a bit now, of course, uh, but to tell the lender you have to do this now. Usually that is your competence. Now we have an external emergency. Now we tell you what to do in a certain field. And that power does not exist for internal emergencies like the one that we currently see. Uh, and so at the moment that the system functions, and don't get me wrong, our argument is not that the German system doesn't function at the, at the moment. It does function because we have a lot of goodwill and voluntary cooperation between the different members and, uh, and the federal state. However, what if that changes, right? We have a bit of a provocative picture here. I hope you uh, forgive us the next two pictures. Um, but uh, before we had this whole crisis uh, uh, with this pandemic, we had another crisis uh, for German democracy, which is of course the rise of a party that a lot of people, or at least wings of a party, which a lot of um, observers do not deem uh, to be uh, also democratic, and uh, they've played a very unfortunate role in recent uh, German politics. And the question is here, so what if we have in the future a uh, uh, situation where this party uh, grows stronger or um, where we even don't have a grand coalition, if you don't want to take it quite that far? Keep in mind, we are at the moment in the quite exceptional, in theory, exceptional situation that we have a grand coalition between the two big German parties, the Social Democrats and the Conservatives. So we don't have at the moment a single uh, government in one of the provinces where not one of the two governing parties at the federal level is also in, uh, uh, in government. So it is no surprise that at the moment we don't have so much conflict between the Bund, the federal level and the lender. But that is for Germany quite exceptional, right? I mean, in recent years, we've had it quite a lot because Merkel has had uh, quite a few grand coalitions. But before that, traditionally in Germany, we only had it once yeah, under the, uh, under the government of Kiesinger in the 60s. So uh, that is an exceptional situation. So we cannot rely in the future that this uh, cooperation that we see at the moment between the Bund and the Länder will continue to be there, right? Um, and the last um, point maybe also on this uh, relationship between the, the federal state and the Länder that I observe, and I'm adding this now to our argument, so uh, maybe, Benedict, you're not in agreement with this. I think we see another... Uh, unfortunate development here because federalism also functions in a way to uh, choose political leadership in Germany. You have to keep that in mind. So apart from Merkel, who is literally the only example that comes to my mind that wasn't a prime minister of a lender before, or German, all German leaders, Schröder, Kohl, Brandt, Schmidt, they all had a very leading function in one of the lender before. So to do a good job as a politician in the lender qualifies you to become maybe something at the federal level. And that is at the moment, I think what we also observe that some of those people who are striving for power at the federal level 
kind of use their positions a bit. So if I think about Laschet, who is kind of at the spearhead of the relaxists at the moment, uh, and if I look about Söder, who's the prime minister of Bavaria, who's at the opposite end, kind of the spearhead of the restrictivists, if you like, uh, then these people obviously have their political ambitions and they're using this system of German federalism a bit uh, to also uh, for for gaining um, in terms of their political career. And that is really something that federalism has always been praised for, that you have these different levels uh, of political power. But in a situation like this, this can also easily be abused. Um, so that is the first part. Yeah, thank you, Pierre. I will now continue with our second uh, criticism, and that relates to the fundamental rights um, uh, catalog in the um, German basic law. And the problem that we see there is that there is no clear distinction between crisis and normality. There are no state of emergency provisions. There is no provision in the basic law that would govern how fundamental rights may be restricted in exceptional times of crisis or emergency. So all measures that we see now and what we have seen in recent weeks were, were probably the most sweeping and, and furthest reaching um, restrictive measures on fundamental rights that the Federal Republic of Germany has ever seen. Um, all these measures are, are subject to the normal regime. Um, now, why would Pierre and me um, as two people uh, who are two, two scholars who, who usually uh, deal with human rights as two human rights lawyers. Why would we criticize that? Why would we um, want um, states of emergencies? Uh, why would we want emergency provisions? Well, the reason for that is that emergency regulations in human rights treaties, and that is the, the analogy um, that we're drawing here, um, when they are properly conceived, they are much more about limiting public power in times of emergency and warning those in power and the population, then they are about enabling the exercise of sovereignty. Um, the emergency provisions in international human rights law treaties, they are there um, to prevent states from invoking the much broader doctrine of necessity and to put in place um, a very limited system for derogating from human rights obligations only in order to restore um, an environment in which human rights are enjoyed again. So the purpose of emergency provisions in human rights treaties are uh, is um, to restore normality, to restore a situation in which people can again enjoy their human rights. If you will, that would be sort of a situation in which the protect and fulfill dimension or certain aspects of the protect and fulfill dimension for a limited period of time um, prevail other dimensions of human rights obligations in order to restore the normal system. And our criticism now against that backdrop of, of, of this, as we think, proper construction um, of emergency provisions in human rights law is that a lack of clear distinction in the basic law could lead to a creeping normalization of emergency measures and could lead to a shift of the standards could lead to a could lead to to a change of the balance um, between um, the public goods and the private good or the human rights or the fundamental rights interests. What we see now is that factually, um, with all these measures, 
um, the public interest of a stable healthcare system uh, has prevailed, like all across the board. All measures are in place to sustain um, a healthcare system, um, and the standard has sort of shifted in that direction, absolutely. Um, and we think that if we had state of emergency provisions in the fundamental law, uh, in the basic law, I'm sorry, and of course they would have to be very carefully conceived um, in order not to allow um, for, for, for a takeover of a populist or any other uh, person who, any other leader who leads to authoritarian measures. Um, but if they are properly conceived, then this distinction uh, could prevent this creeping normalization of tougher measures. And that's why we would argue that the basic law would do good um, if it actually had uh, um, a good um, emergency regulation for fundamental rights. Because yeah, <laughs> That would um, conclude our um, our our um, presentation. Maybe um, two more quick remarks. Um, and one is um, that really this is something that's debated in some uh, political parties at the moment, right? Whether the constitution needs some amendments uh, along these lines. So we're not leading a discussion here in the ivory tower. This is really something that certain uh, parties are um, discussing currently internally. We've been uh, consulted uh, by some of these. Um, and the second thing, um, if you want more about this topic. Um, we have um, a series on Verfassungsblock, three panels that we have organized. Uh, and the series is called the COVID-19 crisis from a German, European and international perspective, uh, each time on Tuesday afternoon. So all Tuesday afternoons uh, in May. Uh, the next one, Schaffen wir das, COVID-19 as a crisis for German law and politics, um, is on the 12th. Uh, we have uh, really great guests. We have um, the former Ministry of Justice, or as I always call her, the Grand Dame of German fundamental rights, uh, Sabine Leuthersen-Schnarrenberger, Christoph Möllers, arguably the leading uh, German scholar on constitutional law, Andrea Römmler from the Hertz School, you know, of course. And then we have on the 19th of May, uh, um, a similar take um, on whatever it takes, COVID-19 as an existential crisis for the European Union. We have uh, the former commissioner, just out, just until December, commissioner for humanitarian aid and crisis management. He was also in charge of Ebola during the Ebola crisis. He will speak. Mark Dawson, you know, uh, from the Hertie School and Anna Bobic. Uh, we have uh, Kim Lane Schäppele, who is probably the leading scholar on what's currently happening in Hungary. Um, and then uh, in session three, maybe the most important for those of you who are really coming from an international law perspective, universally respected but temporarily neglected, COVID-19 as a crisis for human rights and multilateralism. We have Philip Alston, a very, very prominent figure, figure from the human rights field, Markus Sassoli, the leading scholar, I guess, on IHL, Gianluca Burki, who is maybe the leading scholar on WHO, and Nico Krish from Graduate Institute. So we have great people. And if you want to discuss this more in depth, because we only had 15 minutes now, then please join us on uh, all of these or any of these three panels. They are all free of charge and will be live streamed, of course, uh, on YouTube and on, uh, no, not YouTube, no YouTube, right, Benedict? Yeah, YouTube and uh, on Verfassungsburg. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Pierre and Benedict. And it, it seems indeed to be a, a terrific, uh, event uh, and I'm looking forward to, uh, to attending it uh, online. Thanks for listening. You can find more on our website at herdy-school.org.